and welcome to Game Breaking Feature, the podcast where we analyze and discuss common elements of modern video game design and development. My name is Stephen Bennett, and in this episode, we'll be talking about dialogue options, those opportunities in games when you get to choose what your character says. To help me discuss dialogue options is my good friend, Jared Bruner. Jared, how you doing, man? Are you A, great, thanks for asking, B, all right, but I don't feel like talking about it, or C, I will crush you, see you driven before me, and hear the lamentation of your family. Uh, I'm going to go with the hidden option of just not saying anything. That, that's still a choice, that's, right? Sometimes. Sometimes that's a choice. Since all of my jokes usually hit, so I think this time I'm just going to not say anything and see how, where that goes. I had like 10 jokes written for you if you chose C, but I, I didn't write any jokes for if you chose the option to say nothing. I know. I mean, I'm just unpredictable. Really this time, how are you? I'm well. How about yourself? I'm doing well. Yeah, my uh, me and the family just got back from a, a nice, relaxing vacation where I was able to meet up with uh, some good friends. Oh, uh, yeah. Tell me about oh, that. And you, and you were there, too, Jared. The, you oh. were as well. Nice. <laughs> no, I, Jared, you, you, uh, you put us up in your, in your home, and we had a wonderful time visiting you in, in California. We had, a, we had a blast, went to the beach. We played some uh, Mad Libs. Played some Mad car. Libs. I lost my wedding ring in the ocean. I'm married to the ocean now, officially. Yep. <laughs> it's beautiful. Um, but it was, it was a wonderful time. I want to say thank you for, uh, for putting us up. Of course, anytime. And um, are, we, are we talking about you having a kid soon at all? Are we just going to keep that under wraps? I guess we haven't mentioned that. I'm having a kid. Yay! Congratulations! I haven't even thought about talking about it on the podcast before. But yeah, thank you. You're welcome. And uh, the other voice you're hearing, that's our fabulous guest for today. She's a game designer behind many great games, including Sybil, Tacoma, and the upcoming game we met in May. Please welcome to the show, Nina Freeman. Nina, Hello. how are you? I'm here. Are I you, am. Are good. you C? I will crush you. See you driven before. <laughs> <laughs> I'm A. <laughs> oh, perfect. Perfect. I just got off work, so feeling uh, ready for the evening. Very nice. always a good thing. <laughs> always a good thing. And... I mean, talk about work. You've been super busy lately. You just got back from PAX. How was it? It was great. Yeah, I was there with my boyfriend and collaborator, Jake Jeffries, and our collaborator, Ryan Yoshikami, uh, who's a musician. And we were the three of us showing We Met in May, which I think you just briefly mentioned. It's the sort of current side project I have going on outside of my work at Fulbright. Uh, and yeah, we were showing it there at the Mix, which is the Media Indie Exchange, and the Six, <laughs> which is the Seattle Indies Expo. There are two like events sort of outside of PAX. Um, we weren't on Just the PAX all the acronyms. Before. All yeah, the acronyms. Yeah, I know they like sound so similar, so it's kind of hilarious. But yeah, we were at both of those and showed the game. People were laughing, and it was fun. And I did a PAX panel called App Junkies that was fun. And what is that? What is friends. what is App Junkies? It was like, I sort of got involved in it like very last minute, but it was super fun. It was this panel where we, the guy seven who was like running it, downloaded a bunch of like really random, obscure, weird, hilarious mobile games and he played them on stage. And then I was one of the like panel of commentators and we would like, just like make jokes and like talk about the games as he was playing them. And it was like pretty silly um it was super fun though i'd never done like a pax panel before so it was a good first experience i would say now were there any games you saw at pax that you're like really jazzed about for the future 
I like never play games at shows because I'm like too busy working the whole time. I can imagine. So I can't say that I saw anything that like I wasn't already aware of because I like had friends showing games. Well, I'm Portland based, so Rose City Games was there showing a bunch of stuff like Cat Lady. Ooh, um, shout, out to, shout out to Will Lewis. Yeah. <laughs> so like I can say that they were there, but otherwise it's all sort of a blur as far as other games go. <laughs> But let's talk a little bit about your game. Let's talk about We Met in May. What What is that? Yeah, so We Met in May is a collection of vignette games about my boyfriend and I and dates we've gone on that we thought were funny. <laughs> so basically, we're going to release with like four of these little vignette games. And they're kind of like if you've played any of my like previous work a lot of my early stuff was like really short vignette games like how do you do it that like really only take a couple minutes to play and are like very focused like almost character studies so these games are sort of are like in that style and it's a small collection of them and they're kind of like they have like a romantic comedy kind of theme so like one of them you play as me and you're at the beach with uh jake and you're like grabbing everything like sand and chips and wine and like you can pour it all over him because you know you like bury people in sand on the beach but you can like use anything that happened to me this weekend actually (laughs) oh good yeah (laughs) see i love it it's based on based on real experiences um and then another is like about uh tweaking jake's nipples while he's trying to make dinner and that one's funny (laughs) and they're each sort of like about something silly uh with mechanics that suit each story so they're each sort of unique little games but released um as a as a whole package as they have this common theme um so yeah that's what we were showing now now if it was if it was based on my dating life with my wife (laughs) the game would consist of going to restaurants and then being forgotten by the servers for 30 minutes that's (laughs) it seemed to happen to us all the time when we were dating early on Oh, no. <laughs> you always have that you have that like little mini game built in where you try to make eye contact yeah. but not like too aggressively because <laughs> yeah. you don't want to be rude but at the same time it's like come on just oh i'm terrible at that i'm too shy i can't deal with that situation press, at all <laughs> press the space bar to snap at your waiter <laughs> no don't if you're oh, listening no. if you're listening if you're listening to this do not snap at waiters please please <laughs> unless you're snapping to like clap for them for oh yeah, sure yeah oh yeah it's like, like, a, like a poetry clapping. jam yeah exactly <laughs> Do you ever have like concerns about putting so much of your personal self into the games? Because I know this game sounds like it has a lot of stuff that's personal to you. And I think Sybil has has a, a lot of yourself in that game as well, from from my understanding. Like, do you ever find it concerning or do, do you find it liberating? Like, h- how does that work for you as a game designer? To be honest, I like don't even think about it anymore because it's like just what I've always done done my background was originally in poetry and in poetry there's like a very long history of like autobiographical stuff and and that was kind of like the sort of writing I was inspired by and learning about so like New York school poets beat poets stuff like that uh so that was like like totally normal and like just what I was doing before I got into games it's just it's always funny to get this question because like when I was in poetry like no one would ever ask that (laughs) because it's just like a given that you do it um, if that's what you're into. But I, since that's how I learned to write, that's the kind of style I took over into games. Yeah, it's just like second nature to me. I've been doing it for so long in my pers- in my like sort of side project work outside of Fulbright. Obviously, Fulbright stuff isn't personal games for me. But as far as like my side projects go, it, I've always sort of drawn on my personal life because it's, it's 
inspiring. I, I really like stories about ordinary people and like I'm an ordinary person. So I find my own life to be a good, you know, sort of source material. And as someone who like wants to see ordinary stories in games and other media I consume, I like to also sort of put that out there from myself. So I'm kind of like making what I would want to play yeah. sort of thing. And so the question of like, is this cathartic or does it feel risky or weird? Like that doesn't even cross my mind because it's just like, it's the norm for me, I guess. <laughs> no, I mean, it took some practice cool. to get there, obviously, like all those sort of like writing classes in college mm -hmm. and reading personal poems out loud to people in person got me used to that pretty quick. <laughs> yeah, it like even on this podcast, it kind of took me a little while to like even get comfortable with the idea that I was putting my my full name out there. You know, like I, I intro every episode by saying my name is, you know, this is Stephen Bennett. Um, and I don't like, think you even had a Twitter before we started this podcast. Well, no, I didn't have it. I did not have a Twitter before we started this. I'm an I'm an old man, Jared. But, you know, like even that felt like kind of risky to me, just sort of knowing the um, the atmosphere that exists around games. Right. Like like I know that if if someone is listening to this and they don't like my opinion on something like now they have my real name. And that to me, mm. you know, it it is to like a certain extent still a little bit scary i mean not like i don't know not like i live in in constant fear of it but i know that that's like always a possibility so i mean when you're growing up your parents are always like don't talk to strangers and don't tell anybody <laughs> your yeah. full name and now it's just like that's that's what people do for a living yeah yeah kind of have I mean, to i'm sure part of it for me was like i grew up like making websites like literally i think i started like making shit on the internet when i was like 12 like making chat rooms and stuff and hosting them like on my own site literally that young and like my parents don't still don't aren't like super computer savvy so they didn't know what was <laughs> they going don't know, on they don't know how absolutely <laughs> terrifying that is for a 12 year old yeah well i mean i loved it i i had no fear so i was just out there like i mean i used a fake name because i wasn't stupid but like then as i got older and i got into like online games and stuff then i did start to like form real relationships with like real people who I like talk to and we got to know each other that I'm still friends with today. So I'm sure part of it, like part of one's comfort with it, I think probably goes, comes from stuff as far back as that, you know, like, yeah, especially for our generation. I think everyone was kind of raised with different standards around that stuff. Well, that's cool. Yeah. Thank you for sharing the story behind uh, we met in May. Now, when is, when yeah. is the game out? It is going to be out at the end of the month. I don't have a specific date to share yet, but that will be coming very soon. Super cool. And if, if the game sounds like something that you are interested in, you can wish list it now on Steam, I believe. Yes, you can. Go do it. Yes, please. Go to Steam. <laughs> wish list it. it. Get <laughs> on it. I've heard that helps, so please <laughs> add it. <laughs> Go do it. Um, it, does, it does sound super cool. Let's move on to our topic of discussion today. We're talking about dialogue options in games. And Jared, you typically start us off with a little history lesson. Where, where did this all originate from? Well, for our discussion, this one's actually not a game. It's called Eliza, and it was a natural language processing computer program developed by Josef Weizenbaum at MIT's AI laboratory in 1966. It was a program that used pattern matching to simulate a conversation with a therapist. The player or the user of the software would type in responses and questions, and the AI would reincorporate parts of the response to generate follow-up questions. Weizenbaum developed the program to highlight the superficiality of human-computer interaction, but he was actually kind of surprised that people developed a real emotional response when they were using the program. 
There was actually like something that predated this too. I, I think there was some novels that were written that actually had branching paths. So like this idea of a story that could that could branch off, you know, it was it was not unique to the uh, computer age. Um, but Goosebumps. This... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how old that is, but <laughs> was, you got me thinking about branching narrative books, yeah. and I'm like, oh yeah, the I choose your own advent, the choose your own adventures. In yeah. a way, in a way, this this kind of is that. I, I think there were some more like historical uh, examples of this that went like much further back than the the 1900s but people were certainly interested in like how the the player or the reader interacts with story it's interesting that it kind of led to this and it's funny that he like designed it as sort of like a way to say like look how weird it is if we were to talk to computers and people were like uh i love the computer (laughs) (laughs) i have a chobits tattoo which is literally in a manga about that so nice i have i have thought about this deeply also by the way there is a game called eliza now that i was gonna bring up later but i thought it was hilarious on it totally must be based on this thing because i had never heard of this real eliza thing but i've been playing the game and it's like totally about that so we can Amazing. talk about it later, but it, it's a okay. visual novel it total, with some interesting totally dialogue is. option stuff. So we should we should talk about that. But yeah, it yeah. is a game. <laughs> we will we will put we will put a pin in this because I do want to come back around to this. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. There was another piece of software that came out called Danchizuma no Iwaku, or in English, I guess that translates to Seduction of Condominium Wives. It was for the <laughs> PC eighty eight hundred in nineteen eighty three, which I'm not even I'm not even familiar with the eighty eight hundred. I don't think. It was uh, it was it was a line of computers available in Japan. The 8800 and FM7 home computer. Anyways, it was part of a line of strawberry porno games, or eroge. I think that we brought up eroge back in what episode was that? Um, that was when we were talking about romance games with Victoria Tran. That tracks. Uh, you in this game you took on the role of a condom salesman, and you <laughs> must sell product to lonely women in a condominium. And you would knock on random doors when women would answer the player. You were given a a list of options trying to make a sale, including the options was a request for sex, which could lead to a uh, censored scene. So nothing problematic there. Uh, Also, the player (laughs) could fight ghosts and gangsters in the hallways for some reason. (laughs) So if you got bored of of pushing your pedaling your condoms, um, you, you could fight gangsters in the hallways. This is wild, Jared. This one is this one's out there. Is it because this is kind of exactly what I would expect from a 1980s porno game from Japan? I, yeah, I guess. <laughs> I, I want to play this game. It sounds really, really ridiculous. <laughs> it, it, so from from what I was reading, apparently the game is very unbalanced. Uh, apparently, it's like nearly <laughs> impossible to quote unquote win whatever that includes, because um, like everything takes stamina and health. And like it doesn't regenerate at a rate that it like you can keep up with the game, but I think most people probably only played it to mash that <laughs> that one option. <laughs> like let's just try and let's just try to get this one thing to happen in the game. Um, I want to see a speed run. It's, it's wild, man. That's a that's it, a wild one. But I, the the company is it's interesting that you brought this one up because Koei, I'm like ninety nine percent sure was the company that made the first or like sort of started the genre of dating sim visual novels with Angelique. They had like the the co-founders of this husband and wife and I believe the wife sort of created her own team within the studio that was uh, a lot of very uh, heavily 
women on the team and they made this really yeah really really famous game called Angelique that kind of kicked off the history of that genre so that's another interesting one to check out I would say well it, and the thing that's interesting to me is that the mechanic of dialogue options being mixed with this eroge style game I think it shows that there is something alluring, there's something attractive about the idea of communication with a person. There's something just sort of like physically attractive about that. You're you're not trying to impress these women with your feats of strength. You're having a conversation with them. So it seems the natural progression that more focused dating games would come from this. Because you can see they also added in, you know, ghost fights and gangster fights because it was still trying to be a video game in the like at the time in this traditional sense of what a video game is. Um, but it was also interested in these other things about like how people communicate and how uh, relationships develop, at, at least sort of in a, in a fundamental way. On the execution, I don't know. I, I can't say much about that, but you know, <laughs> something like, tells it me was trying to, it was trying to, I, I think it is, I think it is trying to show that there is something like deeper about that, that like, you know, why, communication is important to those kinds of relationship connections but I, I could also be giving it way too much credit <laughs> <laughs> i mean it speaks to just like the general sort of genre of like dating sim visual novels being such a big thing i mean they're like a huge hugely popular genre right and they work because communication like negotiating communication with a partner is like a really important part of you know relationships and sex and sexuality and stuff so it makes sense that that's like one sort of like simple way to get into that topic obviously it's much deeper than just dialogue choices but you know it kind of makes sense that it's it's such a common and like sort of accessible form of games that go back to that topic so it mm -hmm. makes sense whether it's you know a porn game or something i put hakuoki on our list of stuff to talk about which is like a dating sim i love that's like about samurais and stuff this is very like sort of innocent like it's not super raunchy but it's just about like love and and uh the relationship between you and these like boys in the game and you know there's a whole spectrum of games like that and it's it's no mistake that a lot of them incorporate a lot of dialogue choices and stuff you know no we, we've talked pigeon dating sims on here before yeah yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah that's I've, I've another a good one, amount right? of dream daddy i, I still yeah. want to go back to it but i mean that whole game is about sort of you know developing that relationship with your daughter and then translating that into like what kind of dad you want to date and you know i think that's that resonates with a lot of people it just gives you the option to i i guess form your own relationships and on a little deeper level with those characters when people i think typically think about dialogue options i think the first thing that's going to come to a lot of people's minds is is things like the uh the rpgs where they take place games like fallout or skyrim where the uh, your dialogue choices there um, are a big part of the game, but they're not the entire game. They're just you know they're they're one mechanic among many other mechanics that involve shooting mutants in the face. Um, <laughs> so maybe we take a step back. Uh, how do we want to define dialogue options in games? So Nina, like what what first comes mm -hmm. to your mind when you think of the mechanic? Is it something like a dating sim, or is it something more like Skyrim or Fallout? Uh, I mean, I think both. I think any any time, I mean, dialogue options can take a lot of different forms, right? But in the most basic sense, if we're talking about those two specific examples, it's when in a game you are given text or maybe vocal um, options to select from as a player to then say as the character that you're playing as. Um, and 
you know, like I said, that takes many different forms and the outcome of what that is is very different from game to game. But in its most basic form, you're like picking from a list of written choices. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The way they play out is is very unique given the game. And I don't know if we want to get into that yet, but I definitely have some thoughts about that, especially in comparing like the sort of two types that you were just talking about. No, let's do it. Yeah. I think this is a perfect time to jump in. Yeah. I mean, I think like when you... T- Think about comparing, for example, sort of like a traditional dating sim, like a Hakuoki or something to like Mass Effect. There's obviously the thing where like something like Hakuoki is very much just either you're reading dialogue, you're clicking to progress through dialogue, or you make a dialogue choice. And that's like all of the mechanics in the game pretty much versus Mass Effect, which, yeah, has the dialogue choices, but also has employs all these other systems on top of it. And what I think is like the interesting thing to look at between those two games is how in a very in like a Hakuoki type dating sim that has dialogue choices, you often make them. It's just funny with those games because often you actually don't get too much context around what your choice means or what impact it's going to have until after you've made it. So those games have an interesting mechanic where almost always you can actually like rewind and remake your choice pretty much immediately. So that's like one way to get around a player making an uninformed decision and like wishing they had made a different one. Um, So there's this sort of weird like the way you write a dialogue choice really affects how it feels mechanically, like how 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 uh, empowered the player feels with knowledge about what their choice means. I think Mass Effect tries to give the player a little more information with, you know, their whole system around uh, if you're, you know, they like color code the text red uh, and rene- blue. Renegade I and Paragon. Yeah, yeah. So they're like, they're trying to sort of surface more of the like tonal systems mm-hmm. around their dialogue choices so that it's clear to the player what's going on. And those are two very, very different styles of dialogue option that end up kind of leading to the same thing in both games, which is like, sort of a love story often. I mean, that's not all Mass Effect does, but that's one element of it. Uh, and I think it's it's pretty interesting to think about those two, like thinking about dialogue choices in detail like that is, I think, pretty interesting. Like how clear is it actually when you're making the choice and what does that mean in the design of the game? I think, you know, I, so I, I think a lot of games do struggle with communicating to you like the tone of what your character gonna, is going to mm-hmm. say and and the consequences for what you say. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder how much of that is based on the fidelity of games. It, you know, when we're talking to another human being, there's so much that is communicated through tone of voice, through body language, through just the context of your relationship with someone that will affect you know how you say things. And I would say 90% of the time, I managed to not make my wife mad at me. <laughs> like I'm pretty, <laughs> I'm pretty good at that. But like in video games, it's so often, you know, it'd, it'd be like, oh, here's here's an option. Uh, it, how are you today? And then your character goes like, hey, fucker, how are you today? And you're like, that's not what I intend. <laughs> like, that's not what I hold intend. on, Shepard. That's not what I wanted at all. It's was- true. Mass Effect definitely has that <laughs> has that issue. <laughs> but I, I, you're touching on something I think is is kind of important to this discussion, which is the kinds of games that these options appear in. And I, mm-hmm. I think that in a lot of ways, the expectation of dialogue options are often limited to those two kinds of experiences. Now, I won't say exactly dating simulator, but like the like the interpersonal simulation games and RPGs. 
And that's typically where these mechanics live. You don't really see them outside of those kinds of games very often. At least there's not a whole lot that I can think of. I mean, I think more generally speaking, you could say like they dialogue options are used in games where the expectation is that the player can have an effect on the story yeah. or role play their character in a, a mood that they that they think suits that character. Um, and I, I have some examples that we can chat about later that don't do that. And like I've worked on games that don't do that. So it's like it, it is interesting because it's like there is this sort of higher level expectation of what dialogue choices mean but then when you really get into it that assumption is kind of a big one depending on the the systems these games are supporting where it's like how much choice do you actually have <laughs> you know yeah i think it's about like that cr that creating that illusion that you have yeah. some say over mm -hmm. your options or where the story goes i find that perspective really interesting and i've thought about it a lot because like i've done a bunch of games with dialogue choices at this point and my style, I like to consider that expectation and like, so, okay, for example, there's this game Ladylike that I worked on that's like a game where you're riding around in the car with your mom and you're talking to her and every time, at certain points in the conversation, you can choose what you say. Uh, and in that game, uh, the dialogue choice structure is more of a web. You're not really like affecting the story at all. You're just sort of like exploring different topics as you choose things to say and sometimes it can like loop back around and you can like sort of explore a different path that you skipped before for example so in that game the choices are more expressive meant to be more expressive of what the player is interesting in learning about these characters as opposed to the player is making choices as that character and thereby sort of putting their own spin on it dialogue choices that are designed to have you put in the player in the character's shoes rather than the character being shaped to you. And that's the kind of dialogue choice that I'm really interested in making as a designer. Um, and one that I think people forget about, even though it's used in so many games that you actually play. <laughs> so yeah, that's, I guess that's the other side of the coin as far as like dialogue choices go and how, how much effect you have over the story. I think the expectation of having an effect on the story is kind of a, a newer invention. Because when I look back at the like the earliest games I remember playing that provided dialogue options, I think about the games that ran on the Scum engine. So this is like the Monkey Island games. Or um, I've recently been playing a little bit of Day of the Tentacle, which I played when I was much younger. And in those games... The dialogue options, you never had the expectation that what you said was going to have an impact on the way that the game played out moving forward. Instead, dialogue was a little more utilitarian. It was a way to, um, in some cases, communicate important information to the player. Sometimes it was used to communicate humor to the player. But there was never really an expectation that like, oh, if I, you know, if I goof this up, I'm never going to be able to talk to this character again. Because at the end of the day, the, those stories were pretty linear like there was no way to really diverge from the path in a lot of those games well let me tell you about a game called fallout <laughs> given i haven't played fallout and fallout 2 that far into them because i just sort of got into them mm -hmm. in the last like five years that they do have that it's, it's actually like one of the most unique things about those games that that people often criticize fallout 3 and, and beyond for lacking is that unique dialogue options like you can completely end entire quest lines because you say the wrong things and you know they were doing that back in 
the 90s. Yeah. And, and and I'm not saying that there's not exceptions to this, but I think that this was sort of the the common expectation was that the dialogue choices would not have an impact on the game. But if you look at like modern examples of so if if we're talking about the old scum engine games, I think sort of the nearest comparison we have today would be the Telltale games, right? And those are games that are all about your choices having lasting impacts in the way that those games play out. So I think the expectation has shifted over time for what dialogue options mean when it comes to the narrative progression in games. This is a general question for the both of you. Do you try to min-max your dialogue op- options? What do you mean by min-max them? Like like if you if you select something and it uh, doesn't go the way that you wanted it to, like reload your save and try the other thing to, to get the most desirable outcome. Is that something that you guys Jared, scheme, Jared, su- save scum through that? Jared. We all know you're. We all know you're talking about Liara. Just come out and say it. <laughs> <laughs> we all know you're talking about Liara. I love her. No, you know I. I'm the Liara. type of person who will just live with my choices, and so I just ruined any romance for myself because <laughs> I'm just terrible. Well, so I'm. I I have played a lot of like Otome games. So like the Hakuoki game I was mentioning earlier is like a good example of like a classic Japanese dating sim. Uh, and like I mentioned in those games, there's almost always a feature where you can just like go back a few steps and make another choice because the expectation for those games for a lot of the players is like, I'm going to play through every path and see what dating every boy is like. And that's like part of the experience. Uh, so the game is, has mechanics in it and features that specifically support being able to like explore every single path at will. So, yeah, that, that's kind of an interesting thing and, and brings up some differences between maybe like mm-hmm. Eastern and Western styles of game design of visual novel type things. Um, and I'm thinking of like sort of more Mass Effect and Fallout style stuff is like very traditional, like Western style expectations of dialogue. So I think there's also sort of uh, an interesting kind of like where, where in the world are you playing these games the expectations are going to actually be kind of different. I, I have an interesting question for you, and this could be applied to Mass Effect and pretty much any other game that has dialogue options, I think. But in a game that allows you to rewind your decision, or like in Fallout, you can save scum, what's appealing about making each individual decision? Like what, what makes it different to choose each individual dialogue option versus at the start of the game saying, I want to date Brad, I want to see what that looks like, and then just reading the Brad dating story? And, you know, and this could, like, if we're talking about, sorry, like, Mass Effect, like, w- why is it different to make the Paragon choice every single time it comes up versus just saying, always do the Paragon thing for me every time. Don't even ask me to put in, you know, to input anything. Why is the individual choices fun for us? I think it's all about just, like, a feeling of player agency regardless. Even if you know you're going to pick a choice and then, like, rewind it to explore the other path, that is you actively choosing to do that. You could also actively choose to completely ignore the other choices and follow your own path. So it's kind of all about like that gives honestly the player more agency than a game that says I'm locking off all these options from you unless you restart the game. I actually think that that is more player agency. Uh, And on the other hand, I've made these games where you're making dialogue choices that literally have no impact. They're just kind of showing you different aspects of the story. And the purpose in that is also to give this sense of player agency because it's not satisfying to just like click, 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 click through all the dialogue, but I still want to make a dialogue based game. 
So what's a mechanic that can like give the player a sense of like, oh, I'm I'm sort of thinking about these choices, thinking about why the character would say this. They're thinking through that on their own. In the end, as long as that feels good to them and they like considering what the character is saying when they're making that choice, then, you know, it doesn't really need to change the story. It's all about that player agency and the mm -hmm. feeling that they're really getting into this character's head. So it kind of just depends and it's always going to differ from game to game. But I think that that would be my take on that. And what was your first experience with a game that had dialogue choices? Do you remember? Weirdly, Final Fantasy X or Ten Two has some like random dialogue choices in mm -hmm. it that sort of unlock or block off content. So I guess maybe that. Whoa, they um, do? Where in Ten can, yeah, can you block off content? Or I think it's in Ten Two and some of the like sort of side quest things you can you can choose what to say. But I think, yeah, I probably ran into it earliest in some of those bigger RPG games where yeah. It's just like one of the very many systems in that game. <laughs> yeah, and it seems like the the Japanese RPGs are less interested in that kind of interaction. Mm -hmm. At least yeah, at least sure. around that time, like around the Final Fantasy X time. Um, for that genre, yeah, yeah, for that specific sort of set. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, where I think the, the Western RPGs are definitely a lot more interested in creating that, that, I don't know what you want to call it, like that sense of influence over the game, that sense of agency. Well, it's like games that are interested in giving the player an empty shell to fill mm -hmm. with their own personality versus games that are really character driven. Yeah, it's I think true. That's it, the main difference. I think it would be weird to have someone like, well, you know, my frame of reference is like Final Fantasy VII. It would be weird to like be able to choose what Cloud says because Cloud <laughs> is such a, he's such an established character in that world that to maybe choose yeah. some of those options would, would be a little bit at odds where like, well, I think that's what I think the purpose is of the dialogue choices like I was describing that are not affecting the story, but are more expressive of the character. Like, say you have a dialogue option as like Titus in Final Fantasy X, and it's like you're talking to Yuna, and it's like you choose whether to say, you choose one of three ways to tell her to confess your feelings to her, but it all sort of is like around the same kind of theme of telling her your feelings. Depending on the tone of what you say or the specific wording, that gives the player a way to engage with like the multiple ways that one person, one character could be thinking about a larger topic. Yeah. And I think that that's the power of dialogue choices that don't affect the story. It just like gives you a view into like all the stuff going through that character's head um, at the time. And, and I think that that's that's pretty powerful. Um, and I've, I've tried to do that in a lot of my games and. A game like Kentucky Route Zero is a really good example of one that does that a lot. Um, a game that has sort of like, yeah, dialogue choices that don't change the story, but are expressive of many different things to think about in a given moment. Um, so I think I think you could you can use it in linear stories for sure. Now, Jared, how about you? What was your first experience playing a game that that had dialogue options or something that sticks out early in your memory? Man, I feel like I bring up Final Fantasy VII for almost every single episode. <laughs> well, I already, I already, like, I already cracked the seal on that one, Jared, so you're fine. Yeah. Uh, but I think that's probably one of the, the first ones. I was kind of going through and, and reading up about Final Fantasy VII's dialogue options, and they're pretty much all centered around who you get to date at Gold Saucer, which is interesting. You know what? That's true. That is totally true. And when we were... When I first brought up Final Fantasy VII, I was thinking about that, but I completely forgot that that was based on dialogue options. And I think that's all the dialogue options really were, was just centered around that basic one scene. And I think there might have been one towards the end. Pretty much. Um, wow. 
I did not even consider yes. that. So, I don't know. I mean, that's interesting because obviously Final Fantasy VII is very much, while it was you know extremely popular here in the U.S., it's a product of Japan, and uh, you can kind of see maybe that's why it was in, implemented in that way. Um, the Mass Effect series and, and Bioware in general kind of made it, that mechanic stand out for me in the biggest way because of the promise of everything that you do and every option you choose will, you know, culminate at the end of this three game trilogy there you go talking about liara again (laughs) (laughs) what games have the best example of dialogue options that you've ever seen in a game i think the question in my mind would more be like which ones do i think are the most interesting because i don't know if there's one that's like better than the rest of dialogue like we've been talking about dialogue Mm -hmm. options are so varied and how they're used and implemented and designed so like the ones that i find most interesting are probably I brought up Kentucky Route Zero a little bit before because that one is is close to home for me because it was the first time I encountered another game that was doing the style of dialogue choice where it doesn't affect the story but is more like expressive of a moment or like different different things going on in one moment in a character's head and I saw that and talked it was, I was like at GDC, I was like talking to the devs and they were like, oh yeah, like a lot of the choices sort of start at one node, branch out into two directions and then like meet back up after that again mm-hmm. in the in the center sort of like narrative of that scene. And I was like, oh my God, yay, like I'm not the only one doing that. <laughs> so that felt good to learn about because that's a game that, you know, is is full of different dialogue options and feels really lush with them despite not having any like real change happening in the story so i find that game a really inspiring example of how to do like expressive dialogue options and then on the other end is i've been really enjoying life is strange 2 a lot and that's a game where like many dialogue choices you make have a very significant impact on the story like literally someone might die or not Mm -hmm. die (laughs) depending on what you choose and i think that game has really a really nice system around it uh, design-wise because they actually have different input methods for if the choice is like a really important dialogue choice that like might get someone killed for mm-hmm. example versus a minor dialogue choice that might cause your little brother to swear a little more um, <laughs> and I think that that's a really smart way to like think about how to make players feel more empowered with their choices um, is to sort of like present them differently like they do in Life is Strange too. so I think th- those are two that I really like off the top of my head Kentucky Route Zero is a great example because that game is a game that is very much all about its style and presentation right mm-hmm. like it, it's very striking when you first when, even when you first launch up that game how the game uses its pretty simple art style but uses striking silhouettes and the way it uses light and dark so I think it sort of it through its visual language sets an expectation that there's going to be that it's going to be a very expressive game and in a way is, is able to have those dialogue options mirror visuals the the way that it right. communicates visually where I, I think that a game like life is strange too which is is stylized like it's not it's not trying to be photorealistic um, but I don't think that that style of dialogue option would satisfy players in that kind of game because I think it sort of establishes a different kind of expectation for how your choices will impact the story. I think that that's an interesting dichotomy between those two. The dialogue options are extensions of 
the different narratives that the games are going for, but also the different like visual styles that the games are pulling from. Yeah, I mean, the Life is Strange 2 dialogue, like the really important dialogue choices, like are full screen moments. Mm-hmm. It's like you get these like the entire screen is taken up by dialogue choices. <laughs> it's like intense. Yeah, and that's a really and great I way love to it. communicate that importance for sure. Yeah. Jared, how about you? Are there any good, really positive examples of dialogue options in a game that stick out in your mind as, as like being the best you've ever seen? It sticks out to me when it's good because I find a lot of the times when you're given dialogue options, it becomes you know painfully obvious very quickly if it matters or not. The Witcher 3, I think, does a nice job of getting the, the tone and point across while Geralt actually says something, you know, it's, it's a little bit different, but it matches that same tone. I never felt like I was saying I wanted to pick an option and he, he was way, you know, I, my expectations weren't met with what he said uh, while keeping him, you know, in character in that way. So I, I really like that where it, it's it's in universe and the the choices that you made were never black or white, good or evil. It was always kind of like this is like the least sucky way of, of making this decision. <laughs> I like least sucky <laughs> as a descriptor there. Has anyone here played Man of Medan? No, not yet. Who, what is the studio that's working on that? Uh, well, I think it was the people that did Until Dawn. Yes, that was the other game I was thinking about. Until Dawn was fantastic, but I don't remember if they had dialogue options. It was more of like, which way are you going to go? Yeah, and that's part of the thing that kind of gets blurred into this as well is like a lot of this stuff when we're talking about dialogue options also kind of gets mixed into the um, physical action choices that you can make in a lot of these games too. I guess that I guess that counts. I don't know. I'm going to say it counts. <laughs> I mean, it could it could be tricky because yeah, they are often tied together. Have Have either of you ever heard of the game Event Zero? This was a game. No. I have. I really want to play that game. Okay. I never have though. Everyone says I would love it. It's been on my to do list for like ever. I should just play it. <laughs> so this is a game I've not played. I wish I, I I wish I've had an opportunity to play it, but I have not yet. Um, but it's really interesting. It's a game where you are on a on a spaceship all by yourself, and the only thing that you can communicate with is the ship's AI. And there's something like 2 million lines of responses that this AI can provide you with. And you can type in anything you want. You can ask questions. You can tell the machine how you're feeling. And the narrative progresses as you're like, you know, figuring out what happened on the ship and what you're supposed to be doing. But how you talk to the AI, the questions you ask, how you treat the AI affects how the game ends. That to me is the ideal for dialogue options in a game. Because I think one of my biggest concerns, like one of my biggest problems with dialogue options in games is that it's supposed to create this sense that I have free will and agency and I can affect the story. It often kind of does the opposite for me, where like when my choices are presented in front of me, it actually feels pretty limiting. Like, oh, I can do anything as long as anything is one of these three options. The idea that I could type my own dialogue and have a game respond to my like individual questions or my um you know my emotional state that to me is like very exciting game design we had an opportunity to try out something like this at GDC a couple years ago we were at the i think it was Spirit AI uh, yeah i was going to bring this up but i i couldn't i feel like even at the time when we were there i wasn't sure what the demo was supposed to be showing us exactly i think that it shows that it, we're still so like very early with the technological restrictions that allow us to actually have the illusion of like a full meaningful conversation with ai like we're still so far out from that but 
to me, that's why a game like Event Zero seems so exciting, at least when we're talking about these things like dialogue options. I can't speak to the rest of the game. I'm looking forward to playing it. Listeners of the show will know I've been trying to build a PC for about two years now. It's going to happen, people. It's going to happen. Someday. I promise someday. Mm. <laughs> um, there's a game that came out a couple of years ago. I don't know if you've heard of this called Bot Colony. And that game is all about you're actually using your microphone mm-hmm. and it uses text to speech to you issue commands, but also yes. to have conversations uh, with some of the characters. And I've, I've watched some playthroughs of that game. Um, it did not appear to work <laughs> super well, or it wasn't yeah. super like intuitive as how to use. But as far as I know, it's like the only game that really kind of used an AI to um, use speech to text mm-hmm. from you to, to kind of control it. And I think that's interesting because if, you know, I think we might be on the brink of getting to that point where we are able to have intelligent conversations with computers and well that's that brings out a whole nother scary episode well, yeah. that we could using your, do at some point uh, using voice wanna, is the next i want to shout out this game that i think was sort of doing this like type in what you want to say to like like as the way to like speak in the game mm-hmm. as opposed to like you know clicking a pre-authored dialogue option uh this game by emily short called galatea and it it's really well-known, especially in, like, the interactive fiction world. I mean, Emily Short, she's, like, you know, one of, like, the really, really big names in interactive fiction, and she's done a lot of work on this kind of um, stuff. And, like, (laughs) actually, I was looking at the Wikipedia for the game. It also references that thing, Eliza, that you were talking about before. But uh, Galatea is really interesting. It's based on that myth of Pygmalion who carves the sculpture of the woman that he... Like, he falls in love with the statue, basically. The story is based on that, and you literally, like, type things in to say to Galatea. You're playing as Pygmalion, mm. in this case. And I think the game it has, like, so... There's so many... I think it's just, like, has 70 endings or something ridiculous. Oh, wow. It's, like, a super sophisticated um, example of this. So I, I feel like we can't talk about this topic without... Yeah. talking about Emily Shore and like referencing like how much work the interactive fiction community has already done on this topic especially Galatea I think everyone should check that game out it's a trailblazing example of this stuff well so that that game event zero has I believe three endings that were intended and then a fourth ending that was supposedly a bug that the developer doesn't know or claims that they don't know how it got in the game I don't know how true any of that is <laughs> But, you know, it, it, it highlights, I think, one of the difficulties of creating these branching narratives, which is once a narrative branches, if it's if you truly are having an impact on the outcome of the game, every time the narrative branches, someone has to think about like what that next step is for each of those branches. And then if that branch branches off and it's this exponential e- equation of the possible outcomes, that's nearly impossible with, you know, the the number of humans and the number of hours that are working on these games to account for everything, which is why we see something like Mass Effect to a a lot of people's dissatisfaction sort of have the culmination of their choices lead to lead kind of back to a single point or like a, you know, a couple of possible endings. But it's almost like impossible for every single option to have 
an impact on the way that a game plays out. There's just not enough time. Uh, until procedural generation. Well, I know. You, well, <laughs> yeah, that's that's usually me saying that. And maybe I was going there. I don't know. <laughs> if you guys are like into that, you really need to like look into her stuff. She's done a lot of that kind of procedurally generated um, interactive fiction stuff. If she's into and has like was working on an engine for it, I've used it. It's like pretty crazy. Nice. If she's into procedural generated storytelling, I am all about that. I will definitely have to check that out because I, I, to me, I don't imagine a future for gaming that doesn't include that. But that's that's me at the end of every episode. I feel like I should, I should, I should stop saying that. Um, it's kind of like a magical solution. It's like, yeah, it, it's hard to imagine like how that's going to work. Right. Cause it's yeah. just not, it's not like conceptually a thing yet. So how is that? What is that even going to look like? The thing I was thinking of is called Versu that Emily Short was working on, but actually she's not working on it anymore, which mm. is really sad. I don't know what the status of it is, but you should definitely it, read about it. It's called Versu. It sounds very ambitious. It sounds very ambitious. Yeah. It was very ambitious. It was it was real though. I I used it once and it's wild. And the, the fact that she's not working on it or the fact that she's like personally abandoned it is not like to well, me. Well, she didn't she didn't personally abandon it. I think there was an issue with like the mm. she was working on it at Linden Labs. I'm just looking at a Gamma Sutra article. It sounds like there was some stuff around it, but I don't I don't think she I think she it says here she was let go and that Versu was mm. shut down or something like that. Folks should read about it, but um, that is like sort of a piece of history within this. For sure, topic. Yeah, I was just about to say, like that's not even a failure. Like the fact that she was interested in pursuing that and got to the point where it was like actually a usable tool for people is mm -hmm. is very exciting for for someone like me who's very interested in that kind of narrative storytelling. Um, but Nina, are there any games that kind of miss the mark for you, and when it comes to the dialogue options that they present? Games that miss the mark. I think the games that miss the mark for me would be the games that don't commit to a direction for what their dialogue choices are doing. We've brought up Mass Effect as an example of a game where you make a dialogue choice. And like, I remember I made one recently where I like thought it was going to be fine. And then I punched this lady in the face and I really oh, didn't yep. want to and was like kind of <laughs> upset about it. So I would say that was a really negative experience for me. Yeah. So I prefer when the purpose and design and writing of dialogue choices is really in one committed style. So like you're either going all in and you're going to make it really affect the story like in Life is Strange style or you're making it just super expressive and just about like the choices themselves and what they evoke. I don't like games that try to like do something in between. Um, it feels a little like messy to me and I, I get why developers do it so it's not like bad necessarily but as a player I don't like that very much <laughs> despite understanding why it is done so I always want to challenge the expectation that like dialogue choices should have an outcome on the story or an effect on the story because mm -hmm. I think that's like almost like a, a player privilege or something mm -hmm. like I actually don't think players are privileged to affect any story I think that a player should be trying to fill in the shoes of the story of the game that they're playing. And like, if the game really wants to be about giving the player that agency, then that's good. Mm -hmm. But I don't think any game that doesn't do that and tries to use dialogue choices in a more expressive way is bad. And I think a lot of people like to say that one is better than the other. And I think that they can both be good if done right and committed to. 
I totally agree with that. And I, I completely blame Mass Effect for that because of how <laughs> heavily they marketed like every decision you make is, has consequences. And yeah. it just yeah. wasn't really that. See, it's and like it, a marketing the... thing, right? Like we sure. all learned that it's not like a reality or truth of like game design. Mm -hmm. It's just marketing that says that that's the best way to make that kind of game. Like we were just 100%. sold that. <laughs> so I get, I'm just like, no, like as long as you commit to your design and do it and go for it, then it can be really good regardless. The way that they marketed Mass Effect and like every decision is going to impact the way the game plays out was to that game's detriment. Because at the end of the day, I liked the Mass Effect games. I liked the way that it was, at least for me, about the journey, about the relationships I built with the other characters mm -hmm. in that game. But I can Yeah, totally... I enjoy them a lot. The writing is really fun. But I can also understand why people were upset because they had that expectation that was set by the marketing. But, mm -hmm. but beyond the expectation that that game set with its marketing... It stirred up something in a lot of gamers that I don't think a lot of gamers had considered before the Mass Effect series came out, which was the idea that decisions could have weight on the way a story plays out. Because like up until the Mass Effect games, most of the time what we got were games like Deus Ex, one of my favorite games of all time. It still really just kind of comes down to the final decision you make in that game. And that's not to say that your dialogue options early on don't have an impact on anything because it obviously it's impacting your experience with that game but it's not impacting the way that the narrative plays out so i think that for a lot of people that was the first time that they thought to themselves oh my gosh i can have an impact early on and it's going to change the way the game ends and that was like a very exciting prospect that a lot of people hadn't considered before so when it came out and disappointed it was like it felt like a betrayal of this like newly awakened excitement that a lot of people had for this idea it's just such a hard thing to pull off truly so mm -hmm. hopefully people's expectations can be tempered to mm -hmm. that in the future i mean although like if they look at stuff like galatea for example like <laughs> very not mainstream game but like people have gotten a lot closer to that yeah. than mass effect was able mm -hmm. to but like i respect their effort i mean that game is freaking huge yeah. so like they tried <laughs> that's for sure but this is the thing I, this is the other thing that's interesting to me is like is that um the triple a space does not seem interested does not seem truly interested in telling a branching narrative story it seems interested in creating the illusion of a branching narrative story but i think that a lot of the projects that really really strive to give you multiple endings based on the choices you make come from the indie space. I think that's where a lot of, you know, more of this work is being done to really progress this idea of branching narratives in, in game. Uh, I imagine it's a logistical nightmare when you have hundreds of people working on a game and, and mm -hmm. someone decides to change one thing. How many people down the line does that affect? Exactly. <laughs> True. So I can't, I can't even Production begin to nightmare. imagine. Yeah, that's tough. I mean, even for small like indies for like making a really, really deep branching like visual novel or something like it's just so much work. Oh, oh my yeah, gosh. I can you imagine. just have to keep such good notes about mm -hmm. everything because like anything can sort of like ripple out into the rest of the game. I mean, I think back on like I remember seeing Christine Love's tweets when she was working on Lady Killer and just like talking about the complexity of the narrative and how wild it was to try and like keep everything consistent. But like I see her talking about that. I'm like, gosh, I respect you so much for like putting so much work into making sure it's consistent because it's just like exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> Have we seen dialogue options change over time? Nino, you, you put a bunch of games on this list, and today I was kind of going through them and um, refreshing my memory on a lot of these. And one of the things that was, to me, kind of striking is how many of the games implemented communication on cell phones and through email. 
I thought that mm. that was kind of interesting and something that I don't really remember so much like 10 years ago seeing in a lot of games. I mean, I think it's because people who grew up using that stuff are now making games, so they want to put them in the game. I mean, is it the is it <laughs> is that reflective of the way that our communication as like people has changed, do you think? Like like more often now we're text messing each other instead of calling each other is is it ref mm. is that why it's being reflected in games do you think yeah i mean time goes on and people who like me who grew up mostly on the internet i mean i didn't get a phone actually until after high school so i was late on the phone train but like as far as like instant messaging and stuff went like i did that you know 100 percent more than mm -hmm. my parents i mean my parents didn't even really use computers so like i think with generations that engage in those forms mm -hmm. of communication really heavily as like kids and teenagers and they're like shaping their personalities that way and like it's such a core part of your like growing up experience you're inevitably going to see that reflected yeah. in in their work as a game designer because like you in the end you can only draw on what you know or do the research to draw on what you don't know mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's kind of easier to just like go back and be like oh yeah like I remember using my cell phone a lot when I was a kid this is how I used it let's see how I can sort of reflect that in this game that's like a very natural thing to do for a lot of game designers, I think. So you'll be seeing more and more desktop simulators, I'll tell you yeah. that much. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to see a game that really captures that modern feeling of having your cell phone ring and you're just like, oh, God, oh, yeah. who could that be? Why is that? Yeah. Why is my phone ringing? <laughs> <laughs> well, is that something that you gave a lot of thought to when you were making a game like Sybil, a game that, you know, attempts to recreate the experience of playing a game like an MMO and communicating with people through through that kind of medium you know i really wanted to express actually structurally that game is trying to reflect like sort of three levels of communications in the first chapter you're just talking so for people who didn't play it simple's game i worked on about when i dated a guy i met in an online game and we had sex at the end that's the game uh and so in the first chapter you're just playing the online game with him and talking over like a ventrilo or like, I guess now Discord would be the closest thing, a voice chat. Um, and then in the second chapter, like right when it begins, you see the scene of her taking a selfie. And so I'm trying to go from like, okay, just talking via voice to now they can see each other's bodies, even though it's still through a digital interface. And then further into the game, they're on the phone. And so a phone is a piece of technology you physically hold up against your face. And so that is another sort of like layer deeper into like physical versus digital. And then until finally, they're like physically meeting together. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I was thinking a lot about like those sort of like different technologies and how physical they are and how like as a relationship that starts on the internet gets more intimate, you start to use different forms of technology that bring you physically closer together. Um, and that that was kind of what I was interested in, or one of the elements of like technology that mm. I was thinking about a lot when I worked on that game. It's fun for me because like I got to work on that and like, you know, it's something I'm drawing on in my own life. So it was like fun to do that. Re like I have all these hard drives that I like have basically my entire digital life saved on forever. So I was like drawing on real source material and stuff. So it was like fun to kind of get back into that era because in the end, stuff about technology is always going to be different. Like Sybil's going to be like a period piece mm -hmm. someday, which is weird to think about. But like, I like it that you totally had to is. describe what Ventrilo was. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, exactly. I'm like, I don't know. People might not know Ventrilo or like TeamSpeak, right? So like I think about someone growing up now, like young and like 
what is their sort of like Sybil type game about like technology and communication going to look like 10 years from now, from now, like, I don't know, Snapchat, like people screaming at each other on Twitter. Yeah. So (laughs) I, I think that that's sort of an exciting thing in retrospect to have like been a part of is like trying to record that history. And yeah, I'm excited to see other games doing that too. Like, I think I put Firewatch on our list of games to talk about. That's a game that has a lot of dialogue choices that mm-hmm. um, are really interesting. But the way you're making the dialogue choices in that game is through a walkie-talkie, which is also a really interesting way to like do dialogue choices through a piece of technology. Yeah, I hadn't um, even I haven't even yeah. thought about that. And that's like yeah. that's old technology. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's like I don't know. Yeah, I think about that in terms of like Sybil and Firewatch, and um, it's it's. Yeah, you can see that kind of like tech stuff echoing in in some of these dialogue choice games for sure. Now, Nina, as someone who writes games, do you ever worry that the the player is going to like miss some clever dialogue that you had written or like they're mm-hmm. they're going to miss a section of the the story because they chose the like the wrong option? Like can players play the game the wrong way, especially like when options are presented? Uh, it's super important to me as a designer to like make games where there isn't a wrong way to play or that there's like a way to like punish the player for like playing how they want so i guess i'll use sybil as an example in that game at the beginning of each chapter you're on her desktop uh like her desktop computer like her wallpaper on her folders and stuff and you can choose to click through her folders and like look at her pictures, read her poetry, blah, blah, blah. There's some blog posts in there, etc. Or you can just start up the online game and like proceed the part of the game where you're playing the online game with your lover guy. Um, and then you like will miss a lot of the stuff on that desktop. And like I don't warn the player about that or anything. I just try and design that desktop and the interactive things on it to be appealing enough that they might want to look at it. Because, like, I don't want to force anyone to look at stuff. Like, hopefully I can just make the game and the mechanics and and the content of it interesting enough that they want to look at things and that they want to, like, engage with things that aren't, you know, literally just to progress the game. And so I, I have more that that mentality as a designer is, like, kind of, maybe less handholdy. Mm. I'm I'm into that kind of thing more so than, you know, forcing players into into moments. It does I, I can appreciate that because as a player it, it is satisfactory to me. Like I do get um, you know, that I, I feel good when I can do a deeper dive and I'm like, oh that's mm-hmm. really cool. And then maybe it's referenced later in the game or maybe not. And yeah. I, f- I feel like I was like I got something out of that that, you know, maybe some people have missed. And for me that's really rewarding. Yeah. I was I remember that the video of um of Jonathan Blow where he's like almost crying when uh what's his name? Jared help me out here. The rapper that was like playing I, his game. Soldier Boy? Yeah, when Soldier Soldier Boy is playing um Oh man, help me out with the name of the game. <laughs> Braid? Braid, yes, thank you. One of my favorite games of all time. <laughs> Are you okay? <laughs> it's, like, dude, it's like one of your favorite games. Dude, it is it is like a hundred degrees in this room. My brain might actually be boiling. <laughs> oh. But there's that video of Jonathan Blow watching Soldier Boy play Braid, and that's where you edit it in right there, Jared. <laughs> Got it. That's the Got edit it. point. Got it. <laughs> um and he's he's like almost crying because Soldier Boy's just like, look at this guy, he could jump off a cliff and he can rewind. It's funny. And like I always wonder, you know, if if there's more designers like that or more designers like you, Nina, who are like, I eh, put it in there, and if they enjoy it, they enjoy it. If not, that's fine. Because I, yeah. I, I think I would probably end up being more like Jonathan Blow. Like, if I put so much time and attention to detail into a part, like, 
all the different you know folders you can open you can look at the the pictures and the uh the the anime art and all that stuff and someone was just like i just want to get to the game i would be like yeah. i'd be like you're playing it wrong you're doing <laughs> it all wrong get the controller just stop that well it's like in the in the design of the game like i account for that i guess by you know the core of the game is their voiceover which you're just sort of hearing ambiently and you know you can tune it out or turn off the volume if you want but it's the thing that's happening yeah. so you're getting the core story beats but i like to have that other stuff that's just there if you want um and to the jonathan blow thing i mean imo if you're gonna get so upset about someone jumping off the edge of the level (laughs) don't put an edge like don't let them do that Uh, the the video is hilarious silly to get Uh, upset about it it? when it's literally a feature you put in the game do you know what i mean did you ever watch it i saw it oh my god years ago it is hilarious i love laughing at jonathan blow in that part (laughs) i just feel like as a game designer i'm like you know everything that's in your game like you know someone gonna do it you're letting them do it yeah if you don't want them to do it don't put it in the game <laughs> in my opinion have you ever tried designing dialogue trees or like have you ever uh, maybe maybe not like actually sat down and done it but have you ever gone through like the thought exercise of what um a dialogue tree in a game like call of duty or something like that like a, a genre <laughs> a genre where it doesn't typically belong what that would look like how do, how do games like call of duty move into making more of like those interpersonal connections in a meaningful way or or is it literally impossible to implement that stuff into those kinds of games i mean you can layer on more systems i mean that's what mass effect is right like we're talking about it has its whole shootery thing and Mm -hmm. then it has the the more visual novel-y style stuff so like i think you can always layer more systems onto your game but the challenge is like how do they feed back into each other and that that's where things get hard. Um, I think, you know, I'm trying to think of how Mass Effect does Mass Effect even like feedback its dialogue choices into the more shootery parts. I'm actually not sure. Um, I feel like probably not. Yeah, not very much. So like you can have them be separate. I, I personally think it's more interesting design wise to see how they can like feed back into mm-hmm. each other and be a cohesive system. Um, so I would say the challenge to a game where you're like having this one big set of mechanics and wanting to get dialogue choices into it too is to like seriously consider how they can speak to each other and not just like shove two genres together for fun like i mean you can do that and i'm not gonna get mad about it but like it's gonna be more interesting to players if you're like really trying to make the game mm-hmm. function as a whole Okay, hear, hear me out on this one. So Madden 2019, they had like a whole story mode where you, uh, you, or you start cool. out as a um, like a high school player, you get drafted. I, th- I, don't, I think you get drafted straight out of high school. And so it's kind of like there's a story. I, I'm not sure if there's dialogue options in that. Um, but they, they did make a character and there's this whole arc, story arc. But what if in the game, like while you're playing your, your team or your franchise or whatever you you run across the player from like a, another year or another like someone that you were playing against in high school and you you know something about that player and it gives you the option to like, like chastise the fullback or something like smack talk, <laughs> it, like, like, really, smack like, talk. or something yeah like it, I, I you know marrying those two things together would be interesting because there's so many especially with um nfl football there's so many documentaries that really dramatize the, the, mm-hmm. the struggle that in, in the um, effort that goes into becoming the best in the in the league, I think there there would be kind of some interesting um, 
angles you could take with that kind of stuff. Oh, for sure. I like that. Yeah, I think you're onto yeah. something there, Jared. Uh, I mean, the game's like people are, are already, <laughs> there's already memes about do not how steal, do not steal. <laughs> Madden 2020 is like reusing assets and stuff. And it's like, yeah, that's going to happen. But like, you know, maybe we can move the sports genre along in that way. It'd be, be cool. Yeah, that'd be So I, I have a thought that you just made me use. I just, this is random. I wasn't thinking about this ahead of time. But what you just described made me kind of realize that like, you know, and like, I don't know if either of you play Dota 2, but I'm like super into yep. it. Yep. You know, in that game, you can say like a text line that has like a voice component in the chat. Mm-hmm. Those are kind of like dialogue choices in a way. Mm-hmm. And I feel like a lot of times people use them for like smack talk or like making a joke about something that's happening in the game. And I had never thought of those as a dialogue choice, but it actually kind of is because you're choosing to send this like text based message to a bunch of other players for a reason. So yeah, like trying to maybe that's like something. where that idea goes. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, could be. Yeah, and uh, now that you mention it, like Apex also has a lot of the yep. the contextual um, communication in that game as yep. well. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, I guess and it, had... it affects the mood of the other players in the game. So that kind of is like similar yeah. I mean, we to haven't even Mozambique here. We've been talking yeah, about yeah, exactly. <laughs> How to troll your friends one on one. Yeah, and we haven't even, we haven't choices. even really yeah talked about that because. Yeah, how how to design the dialogue systems for multiplayer games could be like a whole other episode that we do because I think that you know yeah for sure that, that that's uh, an interesting space as well. Um, I'll just quickly mention the Old Republic, the MMO game, like tried to allow players to sort of simultaneously make decisions for when there were those branching moments in the quests. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know how successful that was, but uh, that, that was, was rad. That was the best part of that entire game. They were definitely trying, but they were interested in that, right? They were interested in like how do we let multiple people affect how a story plays out, and that was that was a way to do it. That was a way to do it. Um, I liked it. Before we kind of bring this episode to a close, I don't want to leave off before we get to talk a little bit about Eliza. You've been playing Eliza, oh, yeah. Nina. Tell tell me about this yeah. game. I haven't. I I didn't even know about it until uh, we were talking about it uh, before the show, and I looked into it. And it is definitely it definitely seems like it's based on the Eliza that we mentioned in the uh, the history section. Yeah, I, I was thinking that, too. I was like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> it's it really is parallel to the historical Eliza. Um, yeah, it's a it's a new game that just came out like a couple weeks ago uh, by Zektronics. Um, their last big game was Opus Magnum. Uh, they're very oh, yeah. known for like puzzle heavy games. Mm-hmm. And this is their first visual novel. Although I will say Opus Magnum had incredible writing um, and like a sort of like between each level, there was some dialogue stuff that was really, really good. Um, So they've certainly, they're certainly not new to dialogue and a lot of their older games also employ dialogue to some extent. It's just not what they're known for. So I think a lot of people were like, oh my God, a Zactronics visual novel. Um, And it's really, really good. It is basically about, you play as this young woman who is working at a Seattle startup where it the startup has this AI called Eliza that is a, a therapist, basically. And clients come in and they're in this room with you and you, the player character, are sort of the body for the AI. So the AI is telling you what to say and, and you say it out loud to the person to give it, I guess, a more like personal touch that's like the idea in the game Mm. and i brought that game up in terms of dialogue options sort of separate from the history because i wasn't even aware of the history of liza but 
in that game so far i haven't finished it but i love the moments where you're like reading for the ai it's like you're just saying what the ai tells you to say hmm. and that's the dialogue choice is like to say what it says and that <laughs> is just like i love that the Who has dialogue the true choice agency. yeah yeah the dialogue choice is so core to the story the dialogue choice like is the core of the system like it's a game entirely about that um and like themed around that it's just like it's a game that is like sort of the whole mechanical system is just like focused on a dialogue choice and i i just think that's really smart and uh really 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 cool and i just love the game and i love any game that like takes its mechanics so seriously that it like literally becomes like core to the story i think that that kind of game is super interesting to me so i, I definitely recommend eliza to everyone i'm gonna have to check that out i'm i'm very into visual novels lately yeah i'm i'm just waiting for the moment in the game where like in the beginning like you just have the one option is to say what the ai says but i'm positive they're gonna let you not say what the ai says and i'm <laughs> like ah, i want to know what's gonna happen when that happens <laughs> i can't wait for that um and you do get some other dialogue choices like with other characters um so it's not all entirely therapy sessions mm -hmm. um they kind of go in and out of it uh but yeah there there's some cool visual novel stuff going on in that game and i love it considering i just learned about the 19 1966 eliza i am in in a single day i'm already shocked at like how much it seems to have affected video game design yeah totally all right let's let's bring this episode to a close nina how do you, can the industry improve in the way that it implements dialogue options in games is there like one specific thing you can think of that would make dialogue options just better for everything in the future think about how your game can maybe like Eliza be just like entirely about the dialogue choice and like the importance of it and have that be the core of the game or think about how it can feed back into the system that you're sort of integrating dialogue into. I think that dialogue choices don't need to just be like an extra system or something tacked on. They can be really core to the game and considering that can I think lead you to some really interesting design choices. Um, also make more dialogue options that you date everyone and kiss everyone and make lovely dating sims because i want to play them and i love them so that's my other thing <laughs> every game is my personal sim. desire well, <laughs> but I, that does touch on like representation is something we didn't even really talk about in in all of this and i think is uh you know a, a great way for these things to improve and uh, like absolutely allowing for more queer relationships in games just as like the norm instead of like the hey we put a you know a single gay option in this game for you like we're patting ourselves on the back kind of thing yeah i think that that i think that that could be uh really powerful and important yeah absolutely i mean if you're going with like a di like a choice heavy game mm -hmm. like going all the way and letting a player like truly express themselves in that way is just going to make people happy so like if you're making that kind of game just go for it it'll make most people happy it'll make a small section of people very angry but eh, <laughs> ignore <them>. those people <laughs> they're, they're dicks you don't need them <laughs> <laughs> my uh my way that everything could improve is just procedural generation i think that that's i think it's the future <laughs> i think it's the best way well and again, this is for me. This is the kind of games that I like. So I'm, I'm just speaking for myself personally, but um, exploring the way that procedural generation can expand storytelling to me is like the most exciting kind of storytelling that video games can do. So that's that's how I would like to see them improve. Jared, how about you? 
like we said about Mass Effect, is work on maybe the messaging and presentation of what the dialogue options mean for the gameplay. If you're, if you're just throwing it in there, don't present it as a thing that's going to have far-reaching consequences by the end of the story. And I, I guess maybe in multiplayer games, if you consider the player, you know, they can say anything they want, choose, choose the nice thing to say and not, not always the best. <laughs> True. <laughs> That, the, that would be or my give message. a mute option. <laughs> oh yes, I just just make all mute all defaulted. <laughs> right on. Did we uh, did we get to everything that we wanted to get to? I think we did, right? It's felt yeah, good. I mean, I this topic. Our I options. could talk about it like forever. It yeah. just goes so deep. But I feel like we hit some some pretty interesting things. So yeah, I'm I'm happy with the stuff we talked about. Right on. Well, if you, the listener, have any questions or comments about dialogue options in games or any of our previous topics. Send us an email at podcast at gbfeature.com or connect with us at gbfeature on Twitter. Also, I'm always taking uh, topic ideas for the future, so if you have something you want to hear us talk about, send that along as well, and I will try to find the perfect guest to talk about it with. Steve, why don't you read the email from Jeff this week? This one comes from Jeffrey Larkin, who is a host on Someone Should Make This, which is an awesome podcast. Everyone should go check out. Uh, Every week, they pitch video game ideas and they sort of flesh them out. Jared, you and I were on one of the episodes. We pitched a uh, a mediocre game. <laughs> I, they they seem to like it and I want to play it still. So I know. Someone I, should make it. I'm uh, just talking bad about myself. I actually thought the idea was a lot of fun. Go listen to that episode. It was it was uh, really cool and it was a lot of fun to be on the podcast with those guys and they do they do really cool stuff. Um, but so this email comes from Jeffrey Larkin. He says, I really loved the episode. Um, So he's specifically talking about episode 50, where we were discussing uh, parkour and jumping mechanics in games. He said he was waiting with bated breath for us to discuss the first-person shooter Brink, which uh, is a game that he likes a lot. It combines the running of Mirror's Edge with a class-based multiplayer shooter in a unique but ultimately doomed gem of a game. His email is much longer. I'll just leave it there so we can uh, move through this. But Brink was actually a game I put in the show notes for that episode. I didn't get a chance to play Brink. Jared, did you ever play Brink? I, I feel like I played a demo and I didn't get around to playing the full release of it. Um, and I, I seem to remember people hating it when it came out and then loving it several years after I exactly. neglected to play it. Exactly. <laughs> I was like, wait, I, I thought everyone hated this game. What happened? That was the weird thing about that game, right? And I mean, in his email, Jeff Jeff talks about that a little bit. But I, you know, that's one of those games that really, really pinned all its hopes and dreams on its parkour mechanics and i knew very little else about the game like i didn't even realize it was a class-based shooter until he sent that email and i love class-based shooters and and i think that that messaging kind of got lost when they were advertising that game because to me it just looked like sort of a an arena shooter with some slight parkour mechanics but maybe they're just before their time i think they were because if if you look at something like apex that has a lot of those climbing and sliding mechanics that Jeffrey also mentioned in his email. You know, that game's hugely successful and it's it's mobility is such a big part of the gameplay experience. I, I wonder if Brink was literally like just a little bit ahead of its time. Anyway, Nina, do you have any do you have any experience with Brink? Was that one of the ones that you got into? Uh, I have not played it, but I'm wondering is that is that the game where Apex got sliding from? I know Apex was like inspired by another game um, with that. I would. I honestly mechanic. would not. I would not doubt it. Yeah, I. You know, it's just it's so successful in Apex as a mechanic, and I remember talking to some devs, and they were like, "Oh yeah, this game had done it earlier, and there's like a history of that in these other games, blah blah blah." And I'm like, "Oh yeah, like 
How has that not turned up in other games sooner? It's just so smart and feels so good. I love sliding yeah. the text. It's the best. Yeah, it feels real, real good in that game. Anyway, Jeffrey, sorry that game didn't uh, didn't reach the success that it probably deserved. I feel like it probably came out around the time that Call of Duty was on its way up, and people were not looking for that style of shooter. Yeah, I don't know, man. During that popularity, I'd have to go back, have to go back and look when it came out because there's probably some confluence of a bunch of different factors that led to it just not landing the way that it probably deserved to that's awesome though that like it got an audience later i mean Mm -hmm. i you know as a game developer i would never expect that like you see the long tail and you're like it's done so having that happen is like must be a joy for those devs like that's awesome that they managed to reach an audience later so it's it's never too late well, anyway, thank you, uh, thank you, Jeffrey, for the email. Thank you for listening. And, uh, of course, everyone should go check out his podcast, Someone Should Make This. That's it for our emails. Again, if you have any of your own thoughts you want to send along, you can always reach us at podcast at gbfeature.com. That's going to do it for this episode. Before we get out of here, I have to thank our guest, Nina Freeman. Nina, thank you so much for being here, spending your evening with us. It's been a joy. Where can people find your work? Where can people keep up with you? Uh, yeah, uh, thanks for having me. It was fun. I am. I have a website. It's Nina Says dot so, and I'm also on Twitter. My handle is Hentai PhD. There's a story. Um, there's a story behind that. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not a long story. Just just some <laughs> joking at a bar, basically, and then it stuck. Um, and yeah, a lot of my personal work is playable on my my website. I also stream on Twitch at Hentai PhD. I've been doing quite a lot of that. Um, and I, I'm actually a game designer at a company called Fulbright. So if you want to check out our stuff also, that is another thing I'm connected with. So that's me. Very cool. And I will, again, say everyone should uh, go wish list we met in May on Steam. Go do Yay, it. Go you. do it right now. Of Please course. Please do. <laughs> of it's course. It's going to come out so soon. I can't believe it. At some <laughs> unspecified time at the end of the month, but get on there. Yeah. Go do it. <laughs> like, I don't want to say yet. Let me keep procrastinating. <laughs> As a reminder, we release new episodes every two weeks or so. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss anything. If you like what we do and you want to help us out, head over to your podcast app of choice and give us a review. I want to thank Kyle Clark for making our theme song. You can check out his show, This Is Rad, anywhere you get your podcasts. I'm Stephen Bennett. That's at Stephen underscore the gamer on Twitter. And I'm still at Jared Bruner. We want to thank you, the listener, for taking the time to listen to us chat about video games. This has been Game Breaking Feature. Remember, it's okay to disagree. Just don't be a dick about it. 